Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode comes with a content warning and brushes up against topics that could be triggering for our audience. You'll find specific details in the show notes. Please take care when listening. Welcome to another episode of WA Expose, a podcast about local arts by local artists. As always, I'm your host, Aria Scarlett, with the immense privilege of recording this podcast on Wajak Nungabuja. Multidisciplinary artists are definitely trending, with today's guest being a burlesque dancer, singer, ukulele player, and producer. She creates, performs, and produces stories of empowerment that highlight struggles and controversial issues such as slut-shaming and fighting the patriarchy. Growing up in Perth, she studied and performed classical ballet, contemporary dance, Chinese dance, and singing extensively. Having spent most of her adult life overseas amongst cultural diversity has allowed her the chance to learn and form and perform with many people from different backgrounds. Through her work in human rights law and as a human rights advocate for almost 20 years, she sees the arts as another form of activism. A big F you to systemic racism, the patriarchy and dangerous cultural and societal norms. This delightful combination could be none other than Jojo Firestar. How are you today? Hi, Aria. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I get like goosebumps when I read your introduction. It just makes me so incredibly excited for today's conversation. Uh, But we'll start where we always start. So for you, why burlesque? Well, I was living overseas for a long time and I came back to Perth in March 2020 with my family. We came back for a few months and we all know how that story goes. We all got stuck here. <laughs> yep. The borders were closed. We literally couldn't leave. And when I was here, I thought, okay, it's not my choice to be here, but what's something I've always wanted to learn? And I've always loved burlesque um, and, you know, watching people like Dita and the movies like burlesque. I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. I had no idea. So like I said, I had this really extensive classical ballet background and I thought okay I haven't danced for a while but you know maybe Mm. it might be okay went along to my first class and was in love with how empowering it was you know I come from a culture where slut shaming is really prevalent Mm. and also grew up in a very catholic household went to a catholic private school yeah so I had also slut shamed myself a lot over the last uh, you know however many decades yeah that's a really important thing to note that um it comes externally and internally throughout time as well um I giggled before not because of Catholic school I also did the uh, Catholic school private education for a little bit and it yeah definitely ingrained some things in you that yeah then just don't take you to good places the training side of you like when you were in having that experience was there like a particular moment that opened you up to burlesque as something you wanted to do full-time or I think it was probably performing in my first grad show. Mm. So I've been performing um, as an adult for a while, mainly singing overseas. 
Uh, but I hadn't danced on a stage in quite a few, probably about 10, 15 years mm. at that point. And at the time I was 41. Um, but it was so empowering and it was just such a welcoming community. I still have friends from that first class I took. It was a sugar blue burlesque class. Fabulous. How do we get from that first grad show to the incredible Jojo Firestar we know now? I look back and I think, you know, I've only been dancing burlesque for just over two years now. And um, I was really lucky to be selected for The Apprentice last year. And at the time I'd been dancing for less than a year. Wow. Um, and it was a really interesting experience for me. And then I started getting booked for a few shows here and there. And it was at one of these shows during Curtain Call mm -hmm. that I looked around on stage and I counted how many people were on stage and I realized that there were only two performers of color. And I really thought this is really terrible. Mm. And that Perth hasn't progressed that much actually since I was growing up. For instance, when I was dancing ballet when I was growing up, and this is in the 80s and 90s, yeah. I would often be the only person of colour in a class full of 15 or 20 kids. Wow. And so from that, the idea for Biposity, Unity Amongst Diversity, which was the show I produced at Fringe last year and hope to produce again um, next Fringe, came about. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be incredible to see a whole lineup full of only BIPOC artists mm. and crew? And even my photographer was, you know, um, BIPOC as well. What makes me sad though, Aria, is that I don't think that I should have to do this show at all. No, that's such a good point to make is that it should just be something that we're consistently doing is having these incredible performers on the lineup. Yeah, I think it's been quite challenging um, coming back to Perth and realising that Perth actually hasn't progressed as much as I had hoped it was. I was overseas. I've been living overseas for most of my adult life. Mm. Um, and to, to see these changes come about so slowly makes me quite sad. Um, and we sometimes talk about how COVID was a, I, I often call it a pressure cooker moment for Perth, where we had to sort of uh, shit or get off the pot for want of a better <laughs> term. Uh, so we did make like some in very important changes that should have happened 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but I do think it's really important for us to go like, that's not the end of our fight. That's not the end of the discussion. We need to continue to make these changes widespread, not just in fringe, for want of a better term, fringe areas of the scene. Uh, it needs to be on main stages as well. That's right. I think many of us who come from these minority backgrounds are already coming from these backgrounds where um, working in the arts is not actually considered uh, let's say, uh, a good career choice because it's yeah. hard to make money, it's hard to support yourself and your family. Mm. And a lot of us have come from migrant and refugee families where poverty has been an issue and so education is super important. My own personal story is that I studied ballet really seriously, like I said. When I was 13 years old, the, the head of my dance school called my mum in for a chat and she said, look, we think Joanne's really good. We think she could potentially be a professional, but you'd have to invest more in her dance training. And my mother's response to that was to pull me out from ballet school. Oh no, what yes. a heartbreaking moment for you. It was absolutely devastating. And I had to focus on my studies and get into university, which I did. And then I went into law school. And my mum is an incredible woman. Mm. And we've since talked about this. Um, but coming back to burlesque as an adult has been really healing for that part of me. Yes. Um, but if I had seen and if my mother had seen more dancers, more artists of colour, particularly in Perth, I don't know if that would have been such an obstacle as it was for me when I was a kid. 
Most definitely. And even in 2022, when we're still having this exact same discussion about like being the representation we want to see for younger generations, while also putting on that cap of like, you shouldn't have to be (laughs) with all of this weight on your shoulders of being like the representation for younger generations of performers. It's a lot for any performer to have to wear. I think one of my younger BIPOC performer friends reminded me recently that things have changed slightly. When I was younger, I really do feel like there was no one standing up for me and Mm. for my friends of colour. But this particular performer reminded me that it's different now and that we can depend on our white friends and performers and allies to help us and to show solidarity with us, especially when it's already so hard being marginalised and oppressed. That's a very kind, (laughs) a very, very kind person who said that. I I often... uh, lean towards the side of mm, pessimist being like give up girl <laughs> over here and I'm just like nah fuck everyone we don't do anything good anymore but I, that's actually a really sweet sentiment there for sure in your work as a performer you also mentioned um I think I did it at the start and then like your journey through law school as well how did you find that as an institution I went to a really elite university here so I won't name it uh, <laughs> but it was at the time um, one of, it was the most difficult university to get into. Mm. My father had also attended the same university in the 60s, which had been a separate journey. He also didn't have an amazing time, I think, in some aspects. The white Australia policy had just ended before my father migrated from Malaysia. Jesus, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. and he went to university there and had some issues with racism. I think for me, it was an extremely misogynistic culture and I was judged very harshly for the way I looked, the way I dressed, because I'm a woman. I was spoken over in classes and one of the most most, I guess, sobering experiences I faced was when I topped the unit one year, one of my so-called friends, a guy came up to me and he basically accused me of sleeping with my tutor to get the mark. Jesus. And I didn't tell anyone at the time, not even my boyfriend, because I was so ashamed. I thought maybe people think that about me because I'd already been told that I wasn't good enough to be in law school. I wasn't smart enough. People queried that I had the right to be there. And all of this really undermined my confidence. That, and that can definitely lead to something that happens a lot in marginalized communities, which is like to dim your sparkle and to like yes. dumb yourself down in those institutions. Did you, were you able to push past that in the coming years? I did find it challenging. In my early career as a human rights lawyer, I was working um, overseas in Papua New Guinea and I copped a lot of flack because I'm someone who cares about the way I look, for instance. And there's this perception, particularly when you go into development or say volunteering, mm. that it's about being a martyr and not caring about things like makeup and clothes. I was made to feel <laughs> really superficial and frivolous and that really did dim my confidence. Um, I think it's age and time. I'm now 43 and, you know, I'm not old yet but I'm I'm in this next phase called the midlife and I can look back at those experiences and think, okay, those people were trying to make me feel insecure for whatever reason but I know better. I know my own worth. I know that I belonged in law school. I belonged in human rights in Papua New Guinea and no one can take that away from me. It's these incredible experiences um, that really draw me personally to you as a performer. I think that um, your passion and your activism and your work and your presence is just incredibly powerful when on stage. So like anybody who ever gets the chance to see you, they definitely need to be purchasing a ticket before I come and steal all of them. (laughs) I so appreciate that. Um, But when you are on stage, do you now, especially that you've had like all of these incredible experiences, do you still feel a weight of having to perform to something? I do. I've had experiences of racism and discrimination within our own industry, even in my very new career, uh, where I've had similar accusations um, of 
being told that I don't belong and that I've been perhaps given opportunities because of my race. And it has sent me away questioning myself and my um, abilities as a dancer and a performer. Um, And again, I felt shame even though this happened in my 40s. Mm. Um, But I started to tell people about my experiences and I found incredible solidarity amongst particular members of the community. Not everyone, but there are some amazing people out there. And is this the sort of thing that's led you to start your work on the burlesque code of conduct? Yes, that's partially it. I think I've been quite surprised by some of the exploitation I've seen in the burlesque industry because it is so new to me. Um, So in my day job as a human rights lawyer, I've been involved with, say, drafting laws and then Mm. regulations and policies around different human, human rights violations. One of the things I've looked at in my work is fair pay. And um, it's been interesting to see how pay standards are so different depending on which production company is producing the show Mm. and the lack of transparency. I think, I feel like we're even discouraged from sharing how much we get paid (laughs) and how many hours we're expected to work. Most definitely. I want to change that. I think that that's an incredible thing to be pursuing. Can you like explain to us a little bit more on how you see this code of conduct being enacted? Um, The first step for me is I probably want to apply for funding to fund this work because I think it (laughs) should be paid. And then I want to do a large scale um, monitoring and evaluation assessment with the whole burlesque and possibly drag and other fringe artist communities Just, just to see what's happening in Perth, in Western Australia at the moment. Um, and after that, I would like to start drafting it with feedback from the community. And I'd like to say that if I do engage anyone's feedback, I'd also like to pay them for that time, which is why I need funding for this. Yes, most definitely. <laughs> yeah. So if anyone's listening and is interested in funding, please contact me <laughs> as well. But the thing that's also been interesting is I've reached out to quite a few people because I was surprised that a burlesque code of conduct already didn't exist, mm. but it doesn't. I, I feel like people have probably tried to start it in the past, but it hasn't come to fruition. As a musician, so we've um, recently had the music union state like some very solid base pay moments for performers and artists and bands on stages and those sort of things. But the reaction from the public has been, well, not necessarily the general public, but from venues and promoters has definitely been one of resistance to say the least. Uh, there's been quite a bit of pushback against a what I would consider to be quite a reasonable, if not low, <laughs> uh, rate for a lot of artists. So currently, I think so. Somebody don't check, fact check my numbers. I'm sure I'll look it up properly <laughs> later. But I believe it's a uh, two hundred and fifty dollars per member of the band per forty five minute set. Oh. Um, that's currently where like the rate is sort of sitting, yeah. and venues and producers and. We talked about it a bit with M. Burrows, but they've been quite resistant to this change. And whenever I mention, you know, the music union standardized rates, uh, it's something that actually loses me work rather than uh, ensuring it for the future. Just wondering in more of an open discussion form, because you don't have to have the answer to this, of course, Mm -hmm. how we can change people's mindset to that when we're introducing things like fair pay. I think it's educating people Um, about the fact that the arts is also a legitimate source of income and it's a legitimate career path for people and that people also have to eat and support their families and (laughs) pay rent and things like this. Like we do do this for the love of it, but we also expect to get paid fairly and to not be exploited. I know exactly what you're talking about in the music industry because my own experience in Perth within the music scene, which is very limited, is performing at open mics. (laughs) Now, Overseas, I've performed at open mics for quite a few years, but an open mic overseas where I've been is like, you perform three songs, maybe four. That's fine. Maybe 10 minutes. But so many bars and pubs that I have approached here want you to do a 30-minute set. Mm. 
And so the pubs and the bars get like hours worth of free live music and performers don't even get a free drink. Yeah. I stopped performing at Open Mics in Perth for that reason, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, it makes complete sense. Um, and the model, I think that, uh, again, go back to the episode on M- with M. Burrows, she'll explain it better, but the model is definitely one of we put on 10 bands in one night. Um, we don't really pay them. We tell them we'll get them, you know, they can have all the door money that they want in the history of the world. Yeah. Then we tell them to all bring 10 friends each and those 10 friends will cover all of the costs, pay for the entire room, and they'll drink. And it's literally the alcohol sales that the venue then survives on. And because you let in 10 friends at the door for free per band, suddenly the door sales look pretty pitiful by the end of the night. And each band is taking home like, you know, pennies on the dollar. The uh, disparity is that, you know, before you step on the stage, that's when you've done the work. Yeah. Um, And people don't want to yet recognize that work in my experience anyway. I think... Yeah, the hours of rehearsal, the lessons you've had, the amount of money you've spent on instruments and costumes, your travel time, none of that gets factored in. So people might say, oh, that's so amazing. You just got paid $100 to dance for three minutes Mm. and ignore everything that's gone into that before that moment. Most definitely. Um, So in your experience now in the Perth scene, are you seeing that that's still something that we're struggling with majorly? Are you seeing like some areas shifting and how can we open up that conversation more? I think it's an area that is still struggling, yeah. particularly when it comes to newer and younger performers who are just so excited to get stage time, as we all are when we first begin this journey in whatever genre we pursue, and not understanding that it it amounts to unpaid labour and, and exploited labour. People are just so happy to be on the stage. <laughs> and I just think that gets exploited and that's just so unfair and should be illegal actually. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Um, and I think that I probably said this in a previous episode too, that we pride ourselves on competitions a lot here in Perth and in Western Australia. And um, I've fallen into the trap as well. So I say this from experience, but a competition is a great way to have a lot of performers unpaid on stage um, where you get them a nice sash at the end. <laughs> I heard that episode actually, I think was it with Sugar and I sort of agree with you. I also, I have an issue with paying application fees for competitions. Mm. So we're saying, okay, the producer's already getting a show, an amazing show with an incredible lineup. They don't have to pay anyone. And they're also getting a fee on top of that from the performers. Yeah, that's another level that I didn't even really consider and something we didn't talk about previously. Can you expand on that a bit? Because application fees isn't something that I've experienced as much. Okay. I don't know if, I think it's quite standard in at least the burlesque. Uh, world in the competitions I've seen. Generally, you have to pay a fee to apply for a competition. And in some competitions, you also have to pay a fee if you get selected for the competition. Oh. So there's a double fee. So that's not spoken about either. And there's no trans, well, I suppose there is transparency, but it's not well known, I should say. No, definitely. I mean, um, these things definitely need to be more transparent to the audience who are watching the shows. Uh, It's one thing for us to be like very insular um, (laughs) within each other. And we all know behind the scenes what goes on. But if we're not talking about it publicly, then people like me who just enjoy burlesque, we're going to (laughs) be, we're going to be out in the cold. Well, I think People don't like to talk about these sticky issues because we're worried that it might affect us getting booked. Like even me talking to you now, I'm like, if someone listens to this and thinks, oh, Jojo's talking about me or my show, maybe they might say, okay, well, I don't want her or I don't want her to apply. But I think it's more important to start from a fair baseline. And there's so many people in burlesque, I think, who are hindered by the lack of accessibility to different things, but it's also marketed as a really inclusive, welcoming community. And so I think that we should like live that talk, you know, walk the walk. Most definitely. I think you've just brought up something really important about um, the way that people get 
well, you said it more eloquently. I'm just going to say butthurt <laughs> <laughs> when they when they assume that they're the ones being talked about. And quite often, if you're finding that anything that's being said on these episodes or just in general in the industry is hurting you, then you probably are one of the issues in the scene but that doesn't mean that you're not uh able to change move or grow that's kind of the beauty of the arts absolutely and i'm so new to this industry but i've been told that particularly the burlesque world has changed um a little bit in terms of diversity you know sugar blue burlesque i think has actually done a really good job of that and i do want to do a shout out to melodora daria the owner of the school because she's reached out to me personally and has helped mentor me a lot in producing um and also I'm not sure if they still do this now, but there was a time where Sugar Blue was offering the first term free to any BIPOC person who wanted to try a class. And I thought that was an amazing opportunity. Yeah, when we talk about arts accessibility barriers, often financial is like one that is way up there. Definitely. I think that that's a lot for people to mull over. I would love to take our little break here. When we come back, I think that there's a very special project I would like to talk about. Great. You're so damaged, think you're on your way Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back. I'm still joined with the incredible Jojo. And today's episode, of course, is a special insight into an upcoming show, Shattered. Established and emerging artists join together in highlighting discrimination faced in the workplace and the battles they fight. Shattered is a celebration of impressive humans who've overcome adversity and social barriers to smash the glass ceiling and achieve wonderful things. In a world full of variety shows, honestly, like just, you know, I'm speaking as someone who runs a fucking variety show. So <laughs> I'm all, I'm 100% digging on myself here. No, anyone who's listening, this isn't about you. It's about me. <laughs> What's the difference between Shattered and a regular variety production? I think for myself as a producer, I like to make art that says something. And I really, I guess, use the arts as a vehicle for activism on causes I'm passionate about. And one of them um, is about shattering the glass ceiling. So the reason this show is different, I think it was inspired, like I said, by my earlier experiences at law school mm. where I faced discrimination and ads in my early career. So one day I was talking to two of my friends, um, also amazing burlesque dancers and who also have these really interesting careers. So one of the performers is Bess, who's a physicist. She's also a burlesque dancer and a calisthenics um, artist. Amazing. 
and another friend was Maddie, who is a pharmacist. And we were talking just generally about the discrimination we'd faced in our industries. (laughs) And I had said to them for ages, um, I'd been thinking of maybe doing a legal act, but I wasn't sure how how I could pitch that or where that would go. Mm. Um, And just a heads up that I'm actually not doing a legal act for this show, (laughs) but the idea came from this. And I'd approached um, two other performers at the time, Gigi Love, who's in law school, and uh, Coco. Uh, who is uh, has just finished law school about potentially doing an act at some point. So they'll come together at some point. And the three of us were like, hmm, this seems really unfair. Should we do something about it? And I went away and thought about it. And I thought, okay, this is a show that I'm interested in creating. Uh, and I'm actually producing the show with my very good friend, who's also your friend, I think, Miss Flo Jangles. I'm a big fan, yeah. <laughs> yes, who is winner of The Apprentice 2021 and an amazing teacher, dancer, friend and human. I asked her if she'd be willing to help me co-produce it because it's a lot of work producing. Mm. Uh, I mean, the main job of a producer, as you know, is to provide the financial backing (laughs) for a show. Yes, Yes. I wish somebody had told me that. Yes. (laughs) So to split that with someone is already very comforting. Mm. Um, And we put together, I think, this incredibly diverse cast who are showing how they're smashing glass ceilings in their own different industries. So, um, you know, we have other people working in the aviation industry, in mine sites. Uh, We have Aves Robbins, who's uh, a well-known trans comedian. Um, And I think the acts are just going to be really incredibly uh, diverse. Amazing. So this show obviously takes a stab at traditional workplace structures, asking why the patriarchy is still running our current workplaces. In the arts, we often have to argue just to be considered a job in the first place, which you mentioned earlier as well. How does this show define workplace, do you think? Uh, a place where you get paid. <laughs> I think. And I think when we were casting for the show, we were looking for the intersectionality of performers who also have experience in discrimination in industries outside the performing arts. Mm. Though, as you just mentioned, of course, we face this as well within the own performing arts sector. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so your wide variety of incredible performers, um, can you take us through like some of the other jobs that maybe they'll be exploring in the show? Knowing that this, I promise, will come out just before the show. So we're like, <laughs> without giving so, everything away. Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'll, I think I'll do two maybe, so I won't yeah, give it all away. Of course. So yeah, Bess, I mentioned, is a physicist and her bio says she often gets told you don't look like a physicist. And, you know, her bio also says she can, uh, she's memorised pi to 14 decimal places. Oh my God. So um, her act is incredible. I don't want to give it away, but it is definitely going to be highlighting the work that she's done in her um, non-performing life. And then Maddie as well, who's a pharmacist, is going to be doing a medically themed act and showing um, that intersectionality incredible it sounds like it's going to be an amazing show like really genuinely does I'm very excited about it I think um something that's really interesting about you and your performance style is definitely like your background in all of these incredible places that you've um, traveled and worked in overseas uh what have been your like favorite artistic uh, expressions around the world I think one of my favorite memories was when I directed and co-produced um a children's play and our entire cast, we had 36 people and 22 of the cast were children. Oh, my God. <laughs> and we sold out, uh, you know. Uh, it was an incredible experience seeing the children come together and they range in age from 7 to 17. And it was really incredible to see the adults take on a supporting cast role instead of being the stars and mm. the mentorship that was happening. But um, I think Curtain Call on Closing Night was one of my favourite moments. 
Yeah, with all of the bows just happening at different yeah. times all around <laughs> the room. Um, and you also mentioned that you've got like a background in singing, which there's no way I could let you get out of this chair without telling me absolutely everything about that. <laughs> so I guess um, my parents didn't believe in vocal lessons, uh, similarly to how they pulled me up from ballet. Yeah. So I found, I guess, my musical expression through singing in choirs in school. Um, I actually, my school had an amazing choir and we had the opportunity to perform a lot. So I got some fulfillment from that. And I also performed in adult choirs overseas, but I also had incredible stage fright to the point where I have turned down solo roles. Oh yeah. no. Okay. Talk to me a bit about that. Is it something that expresses itself physically or mentally? It was mental. Ah. It was just that overwhelming feeling of I can't do this. Um, and the funny thing is that I act, I dance, and I'm a public speaker as well. <laughs> yep. But singing, there's just so much vulnerability in that. Um, and then one day I decided to learn ukulele. And my teacher at the time, he heard me sing and he was like, you have to perform with me. And he basically was like, I'll play any song you want but I want you to do a solo. And after that, I started performing. Um, he was He's an amazing mentor and still helps me today. I think that's so wonderful when we just have a, just that one teacher. It can be um, incredibly eye-opening for so many people. And you mentioned that you've had that experience at Sugar Blue as well, where you've found those teachers and that, again, that have provided you with confidence. It's a very special thing. Yeah, I've been incredibly lucky in my teachers and mentors in my performing career. Do you remember what you sung? I do. <laughs> what was it? Uh, it's called The Pie Song. It's uh, from a movie called Waitress with Kerry Russell. It's a lullaby she sings at the end. Beautiful. Yeah. You've got a lovely voice. Oh, my God. Uh, thank. Well, nothing compared to you, but um, my genre is indie folk. So, yeah. Ah, it's a very, yeah, okay, I can't do indie folk. That's a very specific genre. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you were growing up, with like, were you focused on like pop music or like what was your, like what sort of music were you drawn to as a kid? I pretty much only listened to Top 40 in <laughs> yes. Perth in the 80s and yep. 90s. And well, then you I know went, what? Not a bad Top 40 for the 80s and yeah, 90s. <laughs> I guess so. And then I went to uni and I started listening to Triple J and getting really into alternative, particularly alternative Australian music. Mm. Um, I was really into Alex Lloyd before he became really uh, popular <laughs> yeah, yep. and saw him quite a few times. Yeah, It's incredible. Yeah, it's a so band cool. called George. I don't know if yes. you remember them. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, so when you come to like pick your music now, are you referencing that expression or are you referencing like 80s top 40? Like where do you like to go now? Do you know, I have this thing now where I've decided to only perform songs by women or gender diverse people. Mm. So I think my playlist is exclusively women. And at the moment it's like full of these really empowering songs because of Shattered coming up. Of course, oh. yeah. That would be an incredible playlist and just another reason for everybody to go and check out Shattered for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see support for the show, not because I think it's an incredible show and it is, because I want to see support for this topic. You mm. know, like we have this amazing MC, Lucinda Panties, who hasn't been announced yet, but, um, you know, I approached her because of her experiences in her day job, mm. uh, which is in education and discrimination she's seen and faced there. Um, and I really believe in things like discussing things like the gender pay gap, fair maternity leave, you know, parental leave, understanding that women shoulder the mental load. Um, and statistics show that once you have children, it is traditionally the woman or the main caregiver who does all the work inside the house and outside the house. And that's why I want people to come and see this show because I think people don't understand that these barriers and these challenges still exist today. 
Most definitely. Yeah, it's definitely something that we sort of went, well, we let you have jobs. So are you happy now? Yes, exactly. <laughs> we let you into the workforce. We're not paying you the same and you're doing more work. Yes, completely. It's such a an interesting topic and my brain automatically goes to, I wonder when we'll be able to have those discussions in an artistic space as well. Yes. Um, it's, let's hope yeah, so. This it year. Seems, yeah, this year. <laughs> next week. Let's go. When are you ready yeah. for it? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it definitely is something that like only now in, I'm going to call them traditional workspaces, um, you know, your nine to fives or your, you know, whatever time <laughs> uh, we're starting to have those chats now. But in the arts, it's something that you don't even approach, you know, it's like you don't approach people who are coming back from maternity leave. It's not really a thing if they are able to get back into the arts at all then congratulations. Mm, that's you know. interesting. I'm going to research this. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> research and come back and present your findings. On okay. the show. <laughs> yeah. So um, my mother came to Perth in the seventies and she, at the time she had a law degree from a very prestigious university in London and she'd worked as a lawyer in Malaysia for quite some time. So she wasn't uh, a new grad looking for work. And when she came here looking for work, the first thing the law firms told her was, well, you have to change your name. Chinese women traditionally keep our names when we get married and mm-hmm. they forced her to change her surname to my father's name. And then they said she tried so many law firms, she said the secretaries looked down on her and treated her like dirt. And when she finally got offered a job, the law firm said to her, you'll never be a partner because you're a woman and you're Chinese. And she had to take the job because she had to support uh, our extended family in Malaysia. And I want to say that things have changed mm. in Australia. But if you look at leadership roles across the board, women are overwhel- underwhelmingly represented and people of colour even more so. Um, and this was 47 years ago. <laughs> when it comes to like balancing your work life and your art life, how do you do that? It is very difficult. (laughs) I was just saying to someone the other day, I don't think I could be a full-time performer Mm. because it it takes a lot. Um, You know, my day job is also very uh, strenuous and I also have a young family. Mm. So I think just balance in general I find very challenging. But for me, performance um, and dance and music has become the outlet for me. It's when it crosses over into being stressful and the actual performance is not stressful. It's all the other things we've discussed that come with it that make it not so fun for me anymore. (laughs) And that's when you consider, do I really want to keep doing this? <laughs> oh, no. So th- those um, fears have crept in more recently for you in your burlesque world? I have had moments where I thought it might be easier just to quit and just to focus on myself and my family and stay at home. I think we've all had these moments. Mm. Uh, my partner, David, though, was incredible and he said, you'll bounce back. Um, and I think I am like talking to you is, is making me realize that, you know, there is still a space and a place for me. There's incredible people like yourself and other teachers and performers who have made me feel welcome. Um, but it's really hard being a performer of color. And I'm sorry to keep touching on that. Over no, and please over. do. It's your story. <laughs> well, it's and I guess it's my only experience. You know, I don't know what it's like to be in the majority mm. anywhere. But what makes me sad is that we're still facing these challenges in 2022. I do think that my race has hindered my performance opportunities and it's sad to admit that, but I actually think it has been a factor. I want to let that sit with everyone for a second. I think that's really important and thank you so much for sharing from such a raw place there because it is something that I know we've all been struggling recently with trying to balance that 
quote unquote real life and that performer's persona, but to for you to like say it from such a real place, I really appreciate that. So I really hope that things change for the next generation. Most definitely, yeah. Um, sorry, I got a little choked up listening to your story. Oh. <laughs> um, I have found you like the most incredible guest, honestly. Um, with regards to Shattered, I think that it's an incredibly important project. Um, ah, okay, I'm not going to be like this. Um, but I also think that like it's an incredibly beautiful artistic expression uh, and I always say that art doesn't have to be comfortable even at the best of times like we're always searching for something else when we want to dine out in the world that is the arts sometimes I want to just watch MasterChef because everybody's nice to each other <laughs> and I don't have to like feel anything and that's completely valid but there are other times when I would like to be challenged I would like to be um, pushed on my thoughts and I definitely think that Shattered fits into that category and into that genre and I really hope that it is the immense success that I know it can be drawing from all of these incredible experiences from your amazing cast. Um, Lucinda is a phenomenal host. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she will pull everything together in the perfect way. Yes. So I hope everyone comes. Come and help me sell out my show, please, on <laughs> September 30 at Connections. Great. Yeah, that's it. There's the plug, everyone. You <laughs> yeah. will find that incredible link in the show notes today as well. Um, just click on it. Be there, show up in person and show out for Jojo and the incredible lineup that she has created. Um, that's all we have time for today, but it is an immense pleasure. Uh, thank you for making me cry. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you for having me, Aria. <laughs> you've been a wonderful guest. And thank you, everyone, for listening to WA Expose. WA Expose is an independent production. Our artwork was created by Georgia Sassenfeld and our theme music is Corrosive by Aria Scarlett and M. Burrows. You can find out more about the podcast or live shows at ariascarlett.com forward slash WA Expose. We'd be cancelled. Yeah, We'd be cancelled in three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wait, I gotta stop laughing. You can laugh. It's a lovely laugh. Oh, thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.